Uh, this will be our last sermon in Ephesians 2. We are going to keep um, going in our church series, but the last four weeks we've been going through Ephesians 2, and we've been learning about this thing called the church. God has brought his people together, and he's brought them together to be able to worship, to commit to his mission in the world, and we've been learning about how the Bible um, gives us a standard to understand all of that. We didn't make up this thing called the church. It's something that God has revealed in his word, um, and we can trust it. However, because the Bible has been our standard to understand the church, there's at least one question that's kind of inevitable in this whole series, which is this. What is the role of the Bible in the church? Um, what's the connection between the church and the Bible? And I want to be really specific in, in what I'm talking about, because when I say the Bible, um, what we're talking about are God's words. God's words. That might be obvious, but it still needs to be said because it's really important you understand we're talking about God's words, which means what we're really asking is something like this. Why did God speak to the church? Why did God give specific words that were written down for the church, these words, and why did he call the church to care about those words? That's what we're talking about today. And before we understand how Paul addresses that question um, in Ephesians 2, I want to tell you two quick things that I think you'll agree with me on. The first is this. Words are powerful. I would argue that words are the most powerful tool that you use on a regular basic basis. You know, sometimes there's pictures in history books and textbooks and stuff of, like, cavemen discovering fire, and that's supposed to be, like, the most profound tool that um, has ever contributed to civilization. And Greek mythology, something was very similar. But I would argue that fire pales in comparison to the importance of words. Um, you use words every single day. You use them today when you uh, presented um, different homework presentations and you talked to your teachers and your friends or coaches. You came home probably and talked to your parents and your siblings about your day. Um, and then you went to your room or you went to the living room or the basement or wherever and you went on social media and you looked at a whole bunch of words and for some reason they were interesting and important because Words are important to communicate. And if you don't communicate, a massive amount of your life um, doesn't even happen. And even if it does happen, if you don't understand words, um, you don't have a lot of purpose in your life. Words are so important. And I would further argue this second point, which is that one of the reasons that words are so important and powerful is that words create relationships. Relationships are one of the most important things in life, whether they're deep relationships or not very deep relationships. So for example, a not very deep relationship that still matters in your life is when you give money to uh, someone at the cashier, or if you get lost and you ask someone for directions, or you look for someone's opinion about a food place, or something on social media, an opinion about a movie or a television show. Those aren't deep relationships, but they do matter because of what is communicated to you. And then that's not even to talk about intimate and deep relationships like you have with your friends, uh, or your family, or different leaders, 
in your life. And it's from those things, not just those relationships, but the words that create the depth in those relationships that your whole purpose and your whole world comes into being. And the reason that I'm talking about that, even though it's so obvious, is this. God operates in the same way. God doesn't just exist. God chose to speak to humanity. God has words that he's given to communicate a relationship. The reason we can know that we can have a relationship with God is because he's given us words, and those words are much greater and much more powerful than any words that we get from other human beings. I mean, this is literally how the entire Bible begins. God didn't just create the universe. He spoke words, and the instant that he spoke them, the whole world came into being. And not only the whole world, but us. God spoke specific words that created us to be special into creation. And the reason we were so special is we were chosen to have a relationship with God. And God's word started that. And then very, very soon after that began, of course, words also did something else powerful, which is to break that relationship with God. Right? If you go to Genesis chapter 3, it was through Satan's words of deception that man and woman ruined their relationship with God, and we've been like that ever since. So words are powerful enough for God to create a relationship with us. They're also powerful enough to ruin a relationship with God. And yet, the whole rest of the Bible is the story of how God is going to speak words that will shape history in order to restore a relationship with sinners, with what humanity has now become after being deceived. And as we're talking about that, that seems to be something that matters to the Apostle Paul, because when you're talking about the church, you're talking about relationships people have because of their relationship with God, which means it matters what words you trust to form that relationship. And as Paul wraps up his discussion on the church from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, the last three verses that he speaks have to do with this idea of what words you can trust to know you have a relationship with God. And those words are verses 20 to 22 in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read those words back to you, but I'm going to start in verse 19. And I think you'll see why when I read them. Verse 19 says this, So then you, that is Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So God is saying you Christians are people who didn't have a relationship with God, and now you do. And now he's going to explain that that deep, intimate relationship you all have with God and now with one another, that's built on something. You can trust it because of where you got the words to understand that relationship. And that's in verse 20 when Paul says this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Paul is going to say two things in verse 20 and then in verse 21 and 22 about why you can trust God's word to understand God's relationship with you. And the first thing he says in verse 20 is this, that God's word explains and restores our relationship. God's word explains and restores our relationship. You know, if you have to sum up the most important words that the church has, those words would be the gospel, right? The gospel is the truth. If you could sum it up really quickly, um, I would use the words that John Newton once said many years ago, which are, we are great sinners and God is a great savior. That's the truth of the gospel that are the most important words for uh, the Christian church. However, you need to understand why you can trust that the gospel is true, why you can trust that the Bible presents the gospel accurately, and you need a really good reason. You need a trustworthy reason. You need a logical explanation. You need a fair argument. You need a legitimate case if you're going to know that that is true. And when Paul thinks about it, he imagines the church like a building. You know, if you had a house and you wanted to invite people over, or you had a house that you wanted to sleep comfortably at night, you would want to know on some level how that house was built. Because if an earthquake comes along, or if a big gust of wind goes by, you want to know that while you sleep, or while you have friends over, or while you're in it, that the roof doesn't come down on your head, or that the walls don't uh, slide off from the foundations, and the whole thing comes crashing down. It matters how things are built. And if the church is built on God's word, it matters knowing its foundation. And the chief argument that Paul is trying to explain in a nutshell is the Bible is that truth that you really can believe. And he sums it up in verse 20 by saying, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. What Paul is trying to say in a nutshell is this idea that God used people to bring his words to his church. And Paul says you can trust that those words are from God. And the reason you can trust those words are from God is because those words accurately and truthfully explain who Jesus Christ is. And they explain why Christ is important. And he starts that by talking about the apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets are both talking about New Testament writers. So people who wrote after Jesus died and after Jesus rose again. And these were people who both knew Jesus and they knew the Old Testament. And that matters because they knew this story that God was unfolding, that we began this sermon with, that explained that God was coming to fix his relationship with sinners. And sinners would never be able to fix it themselves. God was the one who had to do the work. And it came through a lot of details and a lot of different miniature stories in that one big story. But ultimately, the solution to fixing a relationship with God was going to be fixed in the Messiah. The Messiah was this character who would come and he would fulfill a whole bunch of different requirements that different Old Testament writers explained. For example, he would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be from a family that started with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and all the way down to David. 
Uh, He would come after a prophet who would be like the prophet Elijah. He would come and be perfectly righteous. He would proclaim that the kingdom of God had come. He would do miracles to prove that it was accurate what he was explaining. And ultimately, this Messiah would die after being rejected by his people by taking on the sins of those people. And then he'd rise from the dead. And after all of that was accomplished, he would not only sit with the Father in heaven, but he would also invite both Jews and Gentiles to be saved. Now that was a lot of details from a lot of different people over a long period of time, and yet all of that perfectly led to Jesus Christ. Every single one of those qualifications, every single one of those requirements was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And the way Paul explains how precise that was is by calling Jesus Christ the cornerstone. So if you were in the ancient Near East back um, when Jesus was living and after Jesus was living, um, a house would have a cornerstone. It'd usually be made of lots of stones, but there'd be one stone that was very important because that stone would basically start and uh, coordinate every other stone in the building. So one commentator said it this way, uh, that stone decided the architectural unity and symmetry of the building, which is a fancy way of saying the building would have no shape and you couldn't trust it unless it had a cornerstone. Um, This commentator says the lay of the walls and the dimensions of the structure were all a result of the chief cornerstone. All the other stones had to be adjusted to it. And if they weren't adjusted to it, basically what you'd be left with is just a mess of stones and you'd never have a house. And even if you did have a house, you couldn't trust that it wouldn't fall down when you left it or when some natural disaster took place. And yet what Paul is saying is that the Bible is like a building that has a cornerstone so trustworthy that you can believe everything that's happening because it's one perfect story all leading to that perfect cornerstone, and that was Jesus. And the reason that that was so important for these people in Ephesus to understand is that there were a lot of different people saying that there were a lot of different ways to understand Uh, not only who God is, but that maybe there was lots of other gods. There were false teachers saying, this is God over here. And then there was Paul and the other New Testament apostles who were saying, no, this is God. And ultimately, Paul's argument is saying this. There were men who God used to speak a story that was so perfectly connected with the Old Testament that both stories led to Jesus. And when you read it and understand that that's what it's doing and you see all those details come perfectly in Jesus, not only can you trust the Bible, but you will want your whole life to be a result of the Bible's teaching because it's clear and accurate, which means it must only come from God. You could sum up his argument this way. God's words in the Old Testament tell a story that leads to Jesus Christ. And Christ came to restore our relationship with God. That's why Christ matters. And then when the New Testament writers came, they gave us more of God's words that confirmed and explained that Christ really did come to fix our relationship with God. 
And ultimately, this matters in our series for this reason. Because the church needs to keep trusting and keep looking at those words if we're going to understand and enjoy a relationship with God. The Bible leads to Christ who restores our relationship. And as we continue to look at God's word, we continue to understand and enjoy that relationship. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, I understand that this idea of trusting the Bible is a a huge question. And there are so many ways, actually, that we could have gone through this material because there are so many questions when it comes to, well, why these books? And why is it written like this? And why does it feel difficult to understand sometimes? And, And those are really, really good questions. And the reason I'm not talking about them is not because I don't think they're good questions or because I want to ignore those questions but it's because Paul wants to say something very specific about Scripture without going into all the details of the trustworthiness of Scripture. And even though we'll end with one of those implications and one reason why he doesn't, the next thing he immediately does in verses 21 to 22 is not talk about the Bible, but talk about the relationship. He's going to talk about how the Bible leads to this deeper and more amazing relationship that he wants you to know is guaranteed and trustworthy. And the way he breaks that down is, overall he says this, that God's word establishes and deepens his relationship with his church. It becomes understandable and it gets deeper. Like knowing someone as a friend for a long time, the Bible helps you be a greater friend of God. And helps the whole church do that. But he kind of breaks that down in a couple of ways. And I want to break those down as well. The first thing that he gets at is this. The church's relationship with God is guaranteed in Christ. It's guaranteed in Christ. And you can see that because he uses the word in whom and in him. So when we're talking about all the truth of the Bible, we're ultimately talking about the climax of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, Jesus Christ is the guarantee that this relationship is real. And probably one of the best places in the whole Bible that explains that is uh, Romans chapter 8. Specifically in verse uh, 33 and 34, this is what Paul says. Verse 33, Romans 8, he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what Paul is saying in a nutshell is, who on earth out there has a good case to tell Christians that God still thinks they're sinners? Is there anyone out there who would have a good argument, who could rush through the door right now and say, all of you guys, you don't have a relationship with God, you're still stuck in your sin, there's no way you could be right with God. He says, there is no one out there at all, who could make a legit argument against you. Because all of the details of the Bible lead to Christ so clearly that because of his death and resurrection and the fact that he is with God now interceding for us, it is the absolute guarantee that you can be right with God today. And the more you understand the Bible, the more you understand it's not just because this truth is unbreakable, but it's because God in Christ demonstrates the truth of his love to you as well. God not only wants you to understand you can be saved, 
but that because you're saved, you are definitely loved. And Paul says that in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on in verse 38 to explain, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason you can trust Christ is because Christ is the guarantee that God loves you. And the opposite is true as well. You can trust God loves you because you can trust that Christ died for you. The Bible is not there to give you a bunch of rules that force a control over your life so you just suddenly live better. The Bible ultimately is a story leading to you having the perfect truth that even though you were a sinner, God still wanted you in his family. And even though you could never make that happen, God made it happen for you in Christ. Christ is the church's guarantee that we can have a relationship with God. And then Paul doubles down on that with a second idea, which is this. The church's relationship with God has structural integrity. Now, I understand that sounds like a complicated word, structural integrity. So remember, Paul is thinking about a house. And what it means to have structural integrity is that you can trust the building is built the right way, built by the right person, and that it will protect you. You can trust it's not going to fall down. That's what it means to have structural integrity. And he wants the church to know that the Bible actually does put the church together in the right way, and it will continue to help the church live in the right way. You can really trust it. Because if you can't, the church is in serious danger. I was thinking about this this week because I was learning a random amount of information about this building called the Burj Khalifa. Has anyone heard of the Burj Khalifa? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Burj Khalifa. Can someone yell out what it is? Mm -hmm. It's a building. Why is this building unique? Anyone know, Cam? Yes, it is the tallest building in the world. It is half a mile high, if you can imagine, 163 floors. This is the tallest building in the world. And it's built in India, which is really crazy if you think about it, because India, even if you've never been there, as I have also never been there, India is super hot. And India is, if I can find it here, full of sandstorms that happen on a regular basis. So not only is it kind of nuts to build like a lot of buildings there, but building the tallest building in the world sounds like a nightmare. And if you were going to build the tallest building in the world, you would want to make sure that it was never going to fall over and that people wouldn't pass out all the time when they're building it with hot concrete and all this stuff and that a sandstorm wouldn't come and suddenly top it over in 100 years from now. Yes, Cole. What? What it, what it is? Okay, it's, it's there. Is it hot there? Okay, I'm pretty sure it's hot there. <laughs> yes. And I'm sorry, Eden, because at one point I said I would never take questions, but Cole was staring daggers at me, and I got scared that something serious was happening. So here's the thing, the reason I bring up the Burj Khalifa, because even 
though building that building sounds like an absolute nightmare, it actually ended up having an absolutely perfect plan with all the right materials that was put together the right way. And it, people have given so many details about it and showed the blueprints of it and done documentaries of it so that not only you can see it and know it's beautiful, but you can actually trust it. You can go in it one day if you're lucky. You can go to the top floors and you can be sure that it's not gonna fall over because it was built the right way. And ultimately that comes down to a couple of factors. First of all, you gotta trust the person who built it. And then you gotta trust that they picked the right materials to build that building, right? Now the church is supposed to be something even more beautiful than the Burj Khalifa. The reality is you should be able to trust that because it was put together by the perfect master builder, right? God, of course, is going to build the most beautiful thing ever. But if he's going to do that, ask yourself the question, why did he build it with such bad materials? Why did he make the church full of sinners? Because sinners are just about the worst group of people ever that you could put together and say, this is from God. That seems like the worst thing to do. And Paul's trying to get at that when he uses these words. He uses the words being joined together and being built together. Because what he doesn't mean is, oh, God just picked a bunch of people and he threw them together and he hoped that they would glorify him. The idea of being joined together is being fixed together which gets the idea of being changed and transformed so that you fit together. The idea is that God went all over the world and he picked people up like stones. And even though the world said there's no way you could build anything with that, he started scraping off some of the edges, he started sanding them so they'd stop looking like circles and start looking like squares, and then he put that one in and then he picked up another one, and he did the same thing, and he put it in so it would fit perfectly with the next person, and then he would attach them together, and one by one by one, he started building something so amazing and so beautiful that only God could build it. And when Paul is saying that the church is fit together and joined together, he's saying that he picked us, people who were dead. And before he put us into the church, he changed us so that when we would come, God's word would continue to fix us and change us. And as we supernaturally are united as a family, and when we supernaturally submit and are radically changed as we know more of God's word and we grow to be more and more like him and less and less like the dead people we were, it would prove how beautiful what God is doing is. That's the structural integrity the Bible guarantees. If the church is put together from random people who agree on a certain amount of facts, but they don't agree on the Bible, that building is going to fall apart at some point. But when God actually gives us his word, and he proves over weeks and months and years that his word really can change people and really can make them into something beautiful, that's a building you can trust. And that's what he's trying to get at when he explains this word from the apostles and from the previous prophets that all leads to Christ, that is a church 
That is God's true church. It has structural integrity. And he sums up in a third way the last point that explains why the relationship the church has with God by the word is so amazing. And that's this, that the church's relationship with God is intimate and holy. It is intimate and holy. And the reason that those two are together is because ultimately they're the same thing. I think a lot of people think that if you have a close relationship with God, holiness doesn't seem to fit that. God should just accept me as I am. There doesn't need to be a reason to change. That's how God would demonstrate his love. But God demonstrates his intimate relationship with his church through a much better way. God loves you too much to leave you the way you are, to leave you enslaved to all of your sins, and to leave you without the joy of holiness. It is true that you come to God as you are, but God does not let you stay as you are. And neither does he force you to change against your will. It's by God's word that he leads you into a better kind of life that you could imagine. That obedience actually is something beautiful because being freed from your sin is actually wonderful. And the way he does that is not just that he gives us his word, but that he allows his word to allow his spirit to live with us. Here's something super interesting that I learned this week in studying this text that I hope you find interesting. Paul in this text uses the word temple. He says that we are a holy temple in the Lord. And you know, in the Greek, there's two different words you could use for temple. The first word is like the Jewish temple as a building. You know, they had a building called the temple that the Jewish people would go to to worship God. And it represented the fact that they uh, had to worship God, that he was their Lord, and that he was with them, that he had a relationship with them. However, it didn't feel intimate because God wasn't just generally in the temple because there was an outer part of the temple, and then you went into that part, and then you went into that part, and it was only in the innermost part of the temple that is where God dwelt. And actually, that inner part, that's the second word for temple. There's outer temple, first word, and then inner, inner temple, second word, and that word meant to dwell in. That's actually where God was, in the inner part. And you couldn't get in there because only one person a year could go in there and they had to write, wear the right clothes and they had to do the right things and if they didn't, they would die because God's holiness was so great there. Now let me ask you a question. He says that we as the church are a temple. Do you think that he used the first word for temple, which is we're really far from God? Or he used the second word for temple, in which case we would die if we were there. Amazingly, he uses the second word. So even though in the Old Testament there was a section of the temple that only one person could go to, Paul uses a word saying, you are so close to God, it is like every single one of you are inside the innermost part of the temple, and yet we haven't died. And that is the New Testament revelation that we have God not dwelling in our building, but dwelling in each one of us. 
It's one of the blessings of living when you do now. It's one of the things the Bible talks about that the prophets wish they could have lived now. Not only because they have the whole revelation of who Jesus was and that he perfectly did everything God promised, but that he would still live in you because his Holy Spirit lives in you. And you know ultimately how you know that that's true? Because it's only by the Holy Spirit that anyone could believe the Bible. Understanding the Bible is awesome and amazing, but believing the Bible, that's supernatural. And that's a miracle. And God says that even though the Bible is clear, even though it is logical, even though it is trustworthy, it still takes a supernatural miracle to believe it. And God's Spirit does do that. And that's what he's promised to his church. Not only so that they would grow and be more holy, but that his people would know that God is intimately with them. He would be close to them and therefore change them. All of that ultimately is Paul's argument for why you need to know why the Bible is so important for the church. Now, I know that's a lot of information, so I, I want to go back through a couple of details in such a way to give you a couple applications. Because as we've been saying in this series, if you can understand and recite a lot of Bible information about the church, that's good and helpful. But if you don't understand how it changes you and your role in the church, then it doesn't matter. Ultimately, we need to take this information and we need to apply it so that God would change us. So let me really quickly give you three applications of, of why this matters for you, why you need to consider how powerful God's words are as he relates to his people. This is the first application. God's words invite us into the story. God's words invite us into the story. Near the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says this, that we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Keep that in your head. The living and abiding word of God. He says, you haven't been born again from a word that is dead. This word is alive. Remember that. Because then Peter goes on to explain in chapter 2, verse 4, that as you come to him, which is Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is a mouthful. Did anyone really get that on a first try? That's a lot of different information. Ultimately, this is what Peter's trying to explain. As you understand Jesus, you become more like Jesus. And the reason that can happen for you is because just in the same way the apostles were changed by living with Jesus, God's living word can give you spiritual life. This is another way you could say it. The same God who did all of those amazing miracles in the Old Testament, miracles that sometimes we can wish we witness so we could trust God more, that same God makes you believe scripture now 
And when you read scripture now, especially as you understand it in your church, that same God does speak. I bet so many of you have asked the same question that I used to ask myself as a teenager all the time, which is, if I don't hear God's voice, how do I know God speaks to me? The truth is that God did speak to you. And he spoke to you something so much more special than hearing his audible voice in your ear. Because as you get to take time to explain the depth of a relationship that's not just about you, that has taken place for millions of people over thousands of years with so much more information and so much more explanation than a one-on-one relationship could do, you understand that God's written word is a million times better than his verbal word to just you. And God did it and helps you understand it because this word is alive. And the eternally living God helps you believe it as you understand it more. That's what I mean when I say you're invited into the story. In the same way, thousands of people over thousands of years got to be part of a relationship with God, that is the case for us too. You get to be a part of something as you believe God's word that you're going to meet people one day in heaven if you trust in Christ. You're going to be part of it if you believe it and specifically if you believe in Christ. That's the first part that you need to know and never ever get bored of that fact because it's true. Here's the second application. God's words bring stability in a chaotic world. God's words bring stability in a chaotic world. One thing that I hope you notice clearly is there's something about this world, there's something about this culture that actually likes uncertainty. Sometimes people can say it in the language of humility. People can say, you know, if you really believe that the Bible is God's words, you're just arrogant, because how could anyone believe something so old? Or he could say, how could you possibly believe something written by people? I mean, people are broken and messy and they get facts wrong. So that is pretentious for you to think that the Bible could actually be true. And then on the other side, people live their lives and they like and are excited by mysterious things and confusing things. And yet they hide the fact it is hard to live without assurances. It is hard to live without trusting what the purpose of your life is. It's like that quote that I hear from J.R. Tolkien sometimes, not all who wander are lost. That's not really true, spiritually speaking. Because the reality is, as people discuss confusion over politics and sexuality and spirituality, All of that is chaotic. It gives you no hope, it gives you no certainty, and therefore it gives you no purpose. And the Bible says ultimately, it doesn't lead to a relationship with Christ. It doesn't lead to a relationship with God who created you to have hope and to have joy and to have purpose. And that's why he gave us his word, so that you actually would have those things that in a world that is 
full of chaos and full of confusion, you could know so many things are true. And they could actually affect all of your life. And they could actually transform you from someone who's lonely and disappointed and has no purpose into someone who will be with God forever. And until that day comes that you would have a purpose now, you would have joy now, and you would have fellowship with people who would be with God forever now. People want stability. And yet for some reason... They will reject the God who freely offers it to anyone who'd put their faith in Christ. And the church is the place ultimately where the Bible starts making that more and more clear. As you get to come and hear it explained and as you get to read it with friends and you get to read it on your own, you start to understand more and more that God is gonna fix everything one day and in the meantime he's fixing a million things in your heart and your friends hearts and your family's hearts now and that is amazing and that's a reason not to want to drift away from the bible and it's also a reason not to want to get away from a biblical church and that ultimately leads to the third point which is this god's words bring the best relationship with god and each other God's words bring the best relationship with God and each other. And when I say the best, what I mean is you're going to hear people say, you know, I can have a better relationship with God without the Bible. The Bible's too complicated. The Bible's too strict. If I get rid of that, I will feel closer to God. And you hear other people saying, I want relationships with the people, and the Bible ruins my relationships with people. If I just ignore certain facts or I just get rid of the whole thing, then I'll really have relationships with the people that the Bible would ruin. And the Bible explains that that is not true. In fact, Jesus himself warned the Pharisees that that was not true. He says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, he quotes Psalm 118, and he tells them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And after Jesus quoted that Old Testament text, he told the Pharisees, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus was warning the Pharisees of how awful it is for them to get rid of the Bible. And you might think that's weird because the Pharisees seemed to know and understand the Bible the most. But what Jesus was explaining is that if you don't know that the Bible leads to Jesus, then you can't not only go to heaven, but you can't live a heavenly life now. And they're proving they don't understand that because they're living in all the ways the Bible doesn't want them to live that lead to nothing and purposelessness and ultimately to live under our own authority. And when the Bible explains Christ, one of the greatest things he's saving you from is yourself. And that's ultimately where the plane lands on this discussion. Because I think there's a reason that Paul doesn't give you a million facts about why the Bible is God's word. 
It's not because there's not a ton of data to prove it's the case. It's not because there's not thousands of archaeological and logical and historical evidence to prove to you the Bible is 100% true. It's not because those don't exist, because they do. It's because ultimately there's one reason people don't believe the Bible. It's because the Bible says life isn't about you anymore. The Bible says that your life must be about God because all of life is about God. Ultimately, this is the greatest thing that the Bible explains to us. It's not just a big book to explain to you, here's all of your sin so that you would just fall down at Jesus' feet and you would never be happy anymore. And you would never have any other purpose than going to church and Bible studies and serving people that you don't like. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is about saving us from our own hearts. The Bible is getting us off of the Titanic that is going down and for some reason we want to party until we all drown. That's what the Bible's about. It's about how you get saved from a life that's so much better than just being about enjoying your sin until you're separated from God one day. The Bible is about saving you so that you could enjoy fellowship with God and his people forever. And until that day, you could enjoy love that is real and freedom from sin that is indescribable. And ultimately, purpose that is amazing because it's about what all of life is supposed to be about in the first place which is glorifying God. Now listen, questions about the truth of the Bible are good and real. But ultimately, what Paul is explaining is this. Do you want to know God? Do you want to be sure about Jesus? Do you want to know that God really loves you? Well, listen. The Bible will explain it without any problems. The problem it's going to point out is our hearts. But if you can understand that even though you are a great sinner, Christ is a greater Savior. And the reason that the Bible is what the church believes is because it gives the church a pattern of a life that is so much greater than we could do on our own. Ultimately, that is the reason we have the Bible so that your life would be so much fuller, so much greater, so much more purposeful, because it shows you Christ so clearly and so truthfully that one day you'll see Christ face to face. That's why the church needs the Bible. So let's pray. Father, when we come to your word, there are so many questions there are so many details we want to know. Father, we all have doubts, every single one of us. Some of us can be honest about our doubts and ask questions in a way to get closer to the truth, but so many of us have doubts that we're too scared to say because it feels like good Christians don't have doubts. It feels like good Christians sometimes don't ask questions. It feels like being a Christian means to have all the answers already and to know all the details. But Father, we want to confess to you, if we can be honest, that we have so many doubts. And I think 
so chief among them, Father, is that we often doubt if we can really believe your word. But Father, I just pray you would please reveal to our hearts what the problem is, which is that we want to be God. Father, free us from that enslaving thought that the God of the universe that you who we're praying to now has so many better plans for us if we would believe and trust and learn from your word that we would see as it works its power by your spirit in your church, you have so many greater things for us, greater than we can imagine. Let us remember your words from Paul in Ephesians 3, that it is through your church that the manifold wisdom of God is known to the world. Father, let that wisdom be known to us, that we could believe that you really are speaking to us when we believe your word and that it really is enough to bring people together and to fulfill your mission in the world and that we would experience your love to us through the love of each other and we might know we are bound for something more glorious than we can imagine. Father, please work in the hearts of these students who know you, who wanna know you more deeply, help your word come alive to them. But Father, I especially pray for the students that don't know you, who find it difficult to trust your word. Please prove that you have answers to their questions. Please prove that you can change our hearts, that we can believe the Bible, not just because you truly save us from your sin, but because you do have answers to our questions. Father, you are the king of all logic. You are the king of all history. And you are the king of all of our doubts. Father, please reveal to us the ways in which your Bible can answer our questions and most importantly, direct our lives that we would know you and love you forever and that we would understand more the way you know and love us more greatly than we can imagine. And Father, most supremely, let your son, Jesus Christ, his perfect life and his sacrificial death for our sin, let that be the most important thing that we believe in that we hang our lives on. Father, you are worthy, and please continue to work in our hearts today. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.